Well, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me, please, to the Psalms, where we're going to look tonight at Psalm 87. Psalm 87. And uh, it's just a little study tonight. I'm going to confess to you, I'm feeling very weary, but I'm going to pray for strength. <laughs> and uh, we we'll pray that God blesses the word of God to our hearts tonight. Shall we pray? Lord, we ask you to pour your spirit upon us. Give us your strength and power. Help us to take in the message of your word, Lord, to enjoy it and to rejoice in it, Lord, as we think about what you are, who you are and what you're doing. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 87. And it says it's a psalm of the sons of Korah who were priests. And it says it's a song. So it wasn't just a poem. It was to be sung in the temple. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, Selah. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. And of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the peoples, this one was born there. Selah. Both the singers and the players on instruments say, all my songs are in you. Please keep your Bibles open there. In 1917, in December of that year, uh, General Allenby was leading the British Expeditionary Forces against the Ottoman Turk Empire, who were holding Jerusalem still in their clutches, as they had done for 400 years. And General Allenby had his uh, heavy uh, weaponry ready, aimed at Jerusalem. But there was just one problem. He knew he could overpower the Turks without any difficulty. But he knew he would destroy the city that he loved. You see, he was a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian. And he didn't want to do that. And so he, he wanted somehow to win the battle without a shot being fired. And then he had some inspiration. He decided to do a leaflet drop over the city of Jerusalem. Now his leaflet drops were a lot more successful than ours have been. <laughs> and uh, what he did was he made a leaflet uh, that told the, the, the Turkish people, the soldiers inside, that he had the power to uh, defeat them uh, in this part of World War I. And uh, they, they would be wise to surrender. And it was signed in his name, Allenby, at the end. Well, what he didn't know was among the Turks, there was an ancient prophecy. And the prophecy said that this city of Jerusalem would be held by the Turks until a man from Allah came to deliver it from their hands. And they saw the word Allenby and the word be in, uh, in Turkish is the word for man and Allen, Allah is Allen. And they put it together and they said, this is Allah's man. We're going to leave. And they fled the city of Jerusalem without 
a shot being fired and uh, some of the planes there that he had flown over. A remarkable, remarkable story of God's intervention. Some people even see that as a fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 31 verse 5 where it says, As birds flying like the planes, so the Lord of hosts will defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it, and passing over, he will preserve it. So see some. But the point I want to draw out from that is General Allenby didn't want to destroy Jerusalem because it meant something to him as a believer. And uh, Jerusalem is like that to those of us who know the Lord. It's a special city. It's the city of God, as it says in verse 3. Now, I've put up here on the screen, City of Our God, because I've taken that from the hymn. There's a hymn by John Newton, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, Zion, City of Our God. But the text actually says, O City of God. And uh, it's precious to God's people for this reason. You know, in the book of Deuteronomy, God had said to the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness that when they came into the promised land, when they conquered the promised land, they would seek the place where God would put his name. And in Deuteronomy 12 verse 5, amongst other references, it says this, But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place, his temple, and there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And they had to go and find the place where the Lord had put his name. And of course the Lord showed through David uh, exactly where that was to be. It's an interesting thing though, uh, if you ever look at uh, Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is actually in the mountains, if you look in verse 1, his foundation is in the holy mountains, it's plural there, if your Bible says singular, just stick an S on the end, uh, because there's many mountains all around, as it says in Psalm 125, but uh, Jerusalem is based on three, has a mountain range with three valleys through the middle of it. It has the Kidron Valley, it has the Valley of Hinnom, and up the middle it has the Tyropian Valley. And these make a sort of W shape, which is the Hebrew letter Shin, which is, if you remember when we were doing about the Aaronic Blessing, that's the letter for the name of God. What did God say? Where I put my name, that's where you'll come to worship. So even in the geography, the Lord had that organised. So it's a special place. And this psalm, Psalm 87, is a celebration of Zion, Jerusalem. It's the same place. And uh, it's called Zion twice, once in verse 2 and once in verse 5. It's the city of God. And this psalm was written by the sons of Korah. We believe it was about the time of Hezekiah. There's things in the text that give away uh, the dating of this psalm. I won't go into those with you because it'll be a bit, a bit difficult to explain and get a bit long-winded. But uh, we believe this is Old Testament Hezekiah-type era. Uh, and it was a psalm to celebrate the city of Jerusalem. And I want us to see tonight this city as it's revealed in the psalm uh, under four headings so that we can also consider uh, the value of it. I want you to see her features of prominence, her favour politically, her files of people 
and her fountains of praise. And we're going to go from one Jerusalem to another. Because, you know, there's Jerusalem in the past. There's Jerusalem in the future when Jesus comes back and Jerusalem will be rebuilt uh, as his capital city at the second coming. And there's Jerusalem in heaven as well, the new Jerusalem in the end. And we've got to bear in mind all these things. Jerusalem's the only city in the world that has a heavenly counterpart. You know that. And uh, we have to bear that in mind. And I just want to say this in passing as well. For us who are Christians, our Jerusalem is the heavenly Jerusalem. Like it said in Hebrews 13, here we have no earthly city. All right? We're not, we're, we're not uh, children of Jerusalem in Israel. That's the city of the Jews. It belongs to them, not the church. It's their city. But we have a favour for it because it's where the history of our salvation happened and the story of redemption. And uh, it points us to the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. So let's see these uh, uh, things about Jerusalem here from this text. First of all, her features of prominence in verses 1 and 2. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Uh, I'm sure you know who this man is. This is Neil Armstrong, uh, the first man to walk on the moon. And a lot of people know uh, the story of Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. What they don't know is Neil Armstrong walking on the streets of Jerusalem. But when he came back from the moon, uh, this man, who was a Bible believer, he wanted to do uh, a study of Jerusalem. And he went to Jerusalem with the help of an archaeologist by the name of Mir Bendov. And Mir Bendov uh, was a man who knew his stuff and he took uh, uh, Neil Armstrong to the Holder Gate, which is uh, still standing, uh, the remains of it and the steps leading up to it in Jerusalem. I've been there and so have many of you, I'm sure. And he said to Neil Armstrong, these, these steps go right the way back to the first century. And he said, are you telling me that Jesus Christ could have walked on these steps? He said, well, Jesus was a Jew and he would have come up to the temple many times in his life and he would have come up these steps. And he said, are you telling me there's a chance Jesus Christ could have walked on these steps? And he said, there's every chance Jesus would have walked on these steps. And Neil Armstrong said this. He said, I am more excited about stepping on these stones than I was about stepping on the moon. (laughs) The features of this city are beautiful and exciting to us as believers. And he draws out here, the the sons of Korah draw out here two features especially. In verse 1, he draws out the foundation. And in verse 2, he draws out the gates. And it's interesting, it's ironic this, but uh, it's fascinating to think that these are the two features which are still standing in Jerusalem to this day. The temple is gone, but the foundation is there and the gates of Jerusalem are still there. So this Bible study is still up to date. So what does it mean, first one, his foundation is in the holy mountains? Well, what we're talking about here is the foundation of the temple. And you remember that the the temple was built on a threshing floor that had belonged to a man called Aruna. And David had bought this from Aruna as the place for the sacrifice to be offered to stop the plague that had come on the land as a result of his sin. 
And uh, it's actually uh, a, a, an amazing thing that this was done uh, in that way. As, and it's such grace from God that what David did wrong, God turned around for good. And it became the place where the temple was going to be. The same mountain range, Mount, uh, Mount Moriah, where Abraham had offered Isaac. And uh, it had such a significance when Solomon actually built that temple there then. And he laid the foundation on the holy mountains. And we can still see the foundation of the temple today. Uh, Here we have the Wailing Wall, which is a part of the Temple Mount, as we call it. And that's the foundation of the temple. The temple was then built on top of that. And there are... What you can't see in this picture is this, that under the ground there are stones which go very deep and they weigh hundreds of tons. And these stones are believed to be the Solomonic temple stones that are still in existence to this day. And they were laid there by uh, the, the great builders in 1 Kings chapter 5 who laid the foundation for the temple to stand on. And I've just been reading a book. I'm reading a book in bed at night at the moment. Heather loves me reading this. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, called the, it's called The Biblical Engineer. And it's all about how they built the temple. And it's fascinating. How did they move those big stones? And you know what they did was they quarried them from uh, a mine nearby. And uh, the, the, the men who were um, building, what they did was they went to the neighboring nations like the Phoenicians and so on who were seafarers. Now the Jewish people weren't seafarers. The only tribe known to go to sea was Dan according to Judges chapter 5. But they didn't have experience on ships. But they knew about rigging and they knew about the people on ships had to be able to move these huge cargoes onto ships. Things like this. So they went and they said, how do you do it? Train us how you do it. So we can come back to Jerusalem and we can then build the temple. And they used rigging skills. They learned how to build cranes and derricks and so on. And uh, you can see in the stones here the holes where the clamps would have been for lifting these huge stones uh, with the weights uh, pulling them so that they could move them. It's a tremendous thing. But the foundation was laid there for the temple in the holy mountains. And that's one of the features that's so exciting to the man of God who wrote this psalm and is exciting to us. Because the foundation allows everything else to be built on. And you know what, for us as Christians, we can draw a spiritual parallel with that because in the book of Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Peter says this about the Lord Jesus Christ, taking a quote from the scriptures in the Old Testament. He says, therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, And he who believes in him, this cornerstone is a person, the Lord Jesus, he who believes in him will by no means be put to shame. He's saying the Lord Jesus is our foundation, just like the foundation of the temple laid all those years ago. I want to ask you, is he the foundation of your life? Is he the foundation of your life? Wonderful to learn about the foundation stone in Jerusalem, still standing strong all these years later, But what about the foundation of your life? Do you know Christ as your saviour and Lord? We're living in days when we need to be like the wise man who built his house on the rock, like the house of God, 
built on the rock of Mount Moriah. The foundation lived on top. And so let's lay our, uh, uh, let's build on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next part of the uh, prominent features he talks about is in verse 2, and that is the gates. And he says, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Now, when we come to uh, talking about the gates, I'm quite sure that the, uh, the sons of Korah would have been quite excited about this, because the sons of Korah were a particular group of priests who were gatekeepers. Do you remember that from Psalm 84? Just turn back a page or two. For a day, verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And that's the sons of Korah. And of course, the reference to dwelling in the tents of wickedness goes back to their history when Korah's rebellion against Moses and the tents were all swallowed up when the ground opened up. And they said, we'd rather not dwell among the tents of the wicked. We'd rather be doorkeepers in the house of God. And so here in this psalm, Psalm 87, the writers are thrilled to be able to, under inspiration, talk about the gates of Zion. That was their particular work. And it says the Lord loves the gates of Zion. I love that, don't you? The Lord loves it. He's passionate about the gates of Zion. And it says he's more passionate about the gates of Zion than all the dwellings of Jacob. Now, what does that mean, all the dwellings of Jacob? could mean all the other houses uh, of the land of Israel. Jacob is a name for Israel. And when it's talking about Jacob, it nearly always means material Israel, physical Israel, rather than spiritual Israel. And uh, it's talking about this, the material side of things. Most Bible commentators believe what he's saying is, if you remember all the different places where the tabernacle was in Shiloh, and in all these other places, it was, uh, there was a Mount Gerizim, I believe, for a while, and, and some other places moved around. But eventually, the Lord brought things to Zion. And the Lord loves this place and loves these gates more than all the other dwelling places uh, where the tabernacle ever was. And these gates are important. Now, the gates of Jerusalem are still standing today, but they are the, Sol they are the gates of Solomon the Magnificent, the, the Muslim leader. But they're built on the foundations of the original uh, temple gates and uh, city gates in Jerusalem. And one of the things in the Bible is when we see the gates of Jerusalem, they are very instructive. Now, I haven't got time to do a whole Bible study on this tonight, but if you want to do a good little study when you get home, read through Nehemiah chapter 3 and underline each of the gates that Nehemiah and his men rebuilt when they came back from Jerusalem. Because each of those gates takes you on a journey through the Christian life. We begin at the Sheep Gate which is, of course, what happens. We become one of the Lord's sheep, where we become a Christian. It goes to the fish gate, and of course, Jesus said, I'll make you fishers of men. Uh, and it goes on down, it goes through the valley gate, and we have uh, all the difficulties. We have the dung gate, where we have to get the rubbish out of our life. We have the fountain gate, where we have to get filled with the Holy Spirit. And do you know where it ends back up? At the inspection gate, <laughs> the Mifkad altar, the Mifkad gate. And uh, that's where our lives will end, at the Bemer seat. It's a picture of the Christian life all the way around. And each of the gates has a message for us. 
But uh, the message above all is have we passed through Christ the gate. Otherwise we're not even in his heavenly city. So uh, make sure you've come by Jesus Christ who said I am the door. And then secondly we see in this passage her favour politically. We move from the prominent features to her favour politically. Now you can tell at this point we're now talking prophetically because Jerusalem hasn't got that much favour politically to this day and age. Uh, And the late night lights are burning in most of the capitals trying to wonder what to do about the problem in the Middle East. But here God speaking says this in verse 4. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. Now in this verse, God uh, brings about um, some political uh, entities. And uh, he says, sorry, I missed out verse 3, didn't I? Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Uh, And he he talks about, uh, in verse 4, some different places which were known in the ancient world and which we know today, some of them under different names. So we have Egypt, first of all. Now, Egypt is mentioned here in verse 4 as Rahab. That's not the Rahab of Jericho, although I do believe there is a, a complicated connection, but I won't go into that now. But Rahab was a nickname for Egypt in the ancient world. It was the name given to a sea monster. And in the prophecies of the Bible, uh, Pharaoh is likened to the sea monster who lives in the river Nile. And you can read about that in uh, some of the uh, prophecies in Ezekiel and so on. In fact, if you're in uh, the psalm still, Psalm 89 verse 10, you have broken Rahab in pieces as one who is slain. And that's talking about, of course, the God's judgment that came on Egypt at the time of the Exodus. But he says, I will make mention of Rahab. Rahab is Egypt. And then he talks about Babylon. And uh, Babylon is uh, the northern area where Nebuchadnezzar was going to come from. Now, he then goes and says, behold, O Philistia, which is the seafaring people. Sorry, the white writing didn't come out so clear, but it's uh, on the coastland of the land of Israel. And, and then we have Tyre, which is basically Lebanon up in the north. And then we have Ethiopia, which is south of Egypt. or it's called Cush in some ancient uh, translations and uh, older Bible versions. So we have five different countries mentioned here. Five is the number of grace in the Bible. And what God says is, I will mention about Jerusalem, I'll mention about Zion to these cities. And uh, they will say that they know me. Now, this is a remarkable thing to realize that one day God is going to turn the Gentiles in favor politically towards Jerusalem. Now, I want to tell you, there's only one time in history when that can be true. And that's when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back and reigns. But it's going to happen. And God says, I will make mention of it to those who know me. That, you know what it means to know God? That's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus said in Matthew 7 about the day of judgment, he'll say to those who, 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 who were before him, I didn't know you. Away from me, you evildoers. Those who were wrong. So to know the Lord is to be saved. And he says, I'll make mention of 
the, of these uh, of Jerusalem to these who know me. And it will be mentioned this one was born there at the end of verse 4. They will have a standing in the registration in Jerusalem. Scroggy, the Bible commentator, puts it like this. He says, the psalmist represents Jehovah as writing the names of the nations in the burgess role of the kingdom, a truly bold and inspiring figure of speech. But how is this to be brought about? Not by any league of nations, not by any cultural process, not by social reform, but by new birth. The condition of entrance into the future kingdom as now into the church, is by recreation. And we have God's word that it shall be so, however impossible of fulfillment it may seem to us. And it's true. It's amazing. One day God is going to make all those nations, which by the way were all enemy nations of Israel, one day honouring to Jerusalem. You think about Rahab, Egypt, Egypt was the first place to hold them in captivity, wasn't it? The first exile we read about in Exodus. Babylon was the second place. And uh, those two are the first two captors. And both those nations were the first nations to try and attack Jerusalem. Uh, Shishak, the uh, Egyptian king, whose uh, bangles are in the British Museum, he came from Egypt Uh, In 2 Chronicles chapter 12, in the days of Rehoboam, and took away the gold of the temple, you remember. And Nebuchadnezzar came from Babylon. Yet such grace is shown to these enemies of God, that when they turn to the Lord, they will even be mentioned among those who are registered in Jerusalem. And Philistia, behold, he says, that's something to take note of, behold, O Philistia, think of David calling Goliath, you uncircumcised Philistines. That's, that's about it, isn't it? That's how bad it is. Philistia will have converts in the kingdom. Tyre, Lebanon up in the north, and then Ethiopia down in the south. All these nations will have people from them who will be registered as born in Jerusalem and will have political favour on Zion. And you know, it's interesting, we can go through the Bible and we can actually draw a list of some people from each of these nations. And we can think of people from uh, Egypt who came out with the Jews in the time of the Exodus uh, and put their trust in the living God. And Isaiah 19 tells us a prophecy that one day Egypt will be one of those that speaks the language of Canaan. There's going to be a revival among the Egyptians in the last days and they're going to turn to the Lord and be saved. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar himself became a believer from Babylon. And uh, uh, you remember Peter says in his letter, she who is in Babylon greets you. There were, there were Babylonian Jews who trusted in Christ. And what about Philistia? Well, I'm reading in my Bible at the moment the story of David in Samuel. And Samuel went down and he hid with a man who was called King Achish. I think that's how you pronounce his name, King Achish. And he was uh, favorable to David. And in one of the verses, he said, as surely as the Lord lives, you will fight with me, David. And I thought, David led him to the Lord. (laughs) It's wonderful. He'll be there in the kingdom. What about Lebanon up in the north, Tyre? Well, Hiram, king of Tyre, rejoiced when Solomon became king and he provided the logs for the temple. And Ethiopia, my friend, the Ethiopian eunuch. He's going to be there, along with the Ethiopian who rescued Jeremiah from the pit. 
And uh, it's wonderful to think that we know even believers today who come from all these areas. Do you know Ethiopia, Haile Selassie was said to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? There was an interesting article in an Evangelicals Now newspaper some time ago. And uh, it was done by a man who, who lived in Bath and had done an interview with Haile Selassie. Because when Haile Selassie fled Ethiopia, when the Italians stayed, he came to live in this city. And he said, this man's a believer. He's an evangelical. He's trusting in Christ. He'll be there. He'll be trusting in the Lord. And so will many others. What a wonderful and thrilling prospect that is for the future of Zion. And then thirdly, we see her files of people. And this is uh, where we come to verse 5 and 6. And it says, And of Zion it will be said, This one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the people, This one was born there. Now, one of the things that we, we do in this nation is when a baby is born, it has to have a birth certificate, and that's nothing new. That used to happen in the days of the Bible too. When the Lord Jesus Christ was circumcised, you remember, after he was born at Christmas, as we remember, we read Joseph and Mary taking him up to the temple, and they went to register his birth. And at the temple, it was where they registered all the births of all the babies who were born. And the temple was the place where they kept the national registers. Uh, And that's why the, the Romans, of course, were so interested in it, because they could use those for taxation as well. Uh, the fascinating thing is when the temple was destroyed, they were all destroyed. All those birth registers were destroyed, except for one. You see, a tax man by the name of Matthew had copied one into his gospel. And the family tree of the Lord Jesus Christ is the one that survives. Now, that's just a coincidence. (laughs) I don't think. But uh, that's what they used to do anyway. They used to register, this one was born here in Jerusalem. And it was a great joy and privilege to be able to put down on the birth certificate, born in Jerusalem. And uh, the sons of Korah would love that on their certificate, born in Jerusalem. But you know what? That became a picture of the gospel. Because in the New Testament, we're told about the heavenly Jerusalem also keeping a register of those who are born again and listed among her children. Just turn your, in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and chapter 12. We were in chapter 13 earlier, but chapter 12 and verse 23. And it says, but you have come to Mount Zion, this is spiritually speaking, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. To an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. To God the judge of all the earth, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Isn't that a wonderful thing? There's a register in heaven of all those who are born again 
And it's like saying, this one's born of Zion. Paul says in Galatians 4.26 that Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, is the mother of us all. And uh, in, the, in the Septuagint version of Psalm 87, there, the word mother appears before Zion. And of mother Zion it will be said. So maybe this is where Paul got that from. But that's the point. There's a heavenly register just as there was an earthly register. And I want to know, is your name on that heavenly register? Have you trusted the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your name listed in the Lamb's Book of Life? And then finally, the final part of the psalm in verse 7 says this, Both singers and players on instruments say, All my springs are in you. And this talks about her fountains of praise. Now, there were singers from each of the different um, subdivisions of the Levites. You have the, the Gershonites, the, uh, the, the Merarites, and the Kohathites. And they all had different songs to sing in the temple praise. And they were, t- they were also players on instruments. Some of your Bibles may say dancers. They did dance when they brought the, temple, the Ark of the Covenant up to the temple. But generally, it's talking about players on instruments or flute players who accompanied the worship in the temple and they sang all my springs are in you Zion and I always think of this whenever I read this I'm always reminded of of a beautiful man I met down in uh, Barnstable when I went to preach at a PWMI meeting and I love guitar playing and he used to play a 12 string guitar and he used to lead the worship at the PWMI meeting and I've honestly, I can honestly say with present company accepted with our pianists here I've never felt such heavenly worship on earth before as when Harvey used to play all my springs are in you Lord a song he'd written himself and it was just wonderful to hear these words put to worship and uh, that's what they would sing in the temple all my springs are in you. Now, what, do, what does that mean? Well, it means a number of things. Of course, there were literal springs in Jerusalem. We have the Gihon Spring. We have the, uh, uh, the, 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 the Pool of Siloam uh, and so on. There were, it, was, it did have water. It wasn't on a river like other cities, but it did have springs of water. So in one technical sense, you could say, yes, it refers to that. Another interpretation is the word springs can also mean roots. Now, it's not the words for tree roots, but it means the same thing. All our roots are in you. And I want to say this. This is something very important for every Christian growing up in the Lord to understand. All our roots are in Jerusalem. They're all in Israel. They're all in in the Old Testament. Jesus said salvation is of the Jews. You can't be a New Testament Christian and not love the Jews and not love the Old Testament and and the people of God because that's where our roots are. All my springs are in you, our fountains. And we start off with the foundation and we end with the fountains and it's all in you. But there's a third meaning I think it can apply to and that's this. It was in the temple that the Lord Jesus Christ himself made the promise of the water of life to any who would turn to him. The same promise he made to a woman at the well in John chapter 4. And so literally when we turn to him, we have the water of life. And we can say, all my springs are in you. 
It's a beautiful thing. And this is something for the whole world, not just for the Jewish people. This lady here lives in Swaziland in Africa. Her name is Portia Motza. And uh, she and her family used to have to go to a, 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 a spring to get their water every day. The only trouble was the water was constantly polluted and it was the only water source they had. They had terrible trouble with waterborne illnesses and diseases. But one day she went to the well to get some water. And while she was at the well, there was a pastor who was traveling because they, they traveled from many churches out there. And he was traveling on his way to another church to go and preach. And he asked her, could you give me a drink of water from the well? Does this sound familiar? You know? And uh, she very kindly obliged. And he said, when you get home, he said, read John chapter 4 in the Bible. He said, you'll see a parallel. Well, she didn't have her own Bible, so she stopped at a friend's house who did have a Bible, and she read this story. And in her own words, she said, I was so touched by this story, I kept reading it again and again. And she put her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The next Sunday, she went to church and asked the the pastor of the church to lead her to the Lord, which he did. And she put her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and became a true Christian. But somehow she believed there was more than one spring for her. She said, I sensed that one day God would provide us with clean, sweet drinking water. And she prayed, all my springs are in you, Lord. And uh, Samaritan's Purse came along and they provided a new well for that lady. Isn't that a wonderful story? So literally we can say, all my springs are in you, Lord. How great is our God. So glorious things are these are spoken of Zion, O city of God. And we think of all these things and we apply them spiritually. And I pray that you and I will be those who treasure this city for the gospel's sake and for the future uh, of the Jewish people and our own future too as we see the Lord Jesus come back and reign from Jerusalem one day. Even so, come Lord Jesus.